0: looking at exodus chapter 20 verse 14 and before i do read this let me just pray for us for the preaching of god's word father in heaven we do thank you and praise you for every word that you have breathed out we thank you lord for every commandment and we thank you for every promise even as we acknowledge how we have failed to obey you we have we have fallen short of your glory We have not kept your laws and your commandments and your statutes. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his atoning sacrifice, for the working of your spirit, for the forgiveness of sins, and for the renewal that you give us as we are cleansed in him. And so, our God, as we consider your word this evening, would you teach us and instruct us? Would you build us up in the Lord Jesus, and would you draw us closer to yourself? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at Exodus 20, beginning in verse 14, very short uh, commandment. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Well, C.S. Lewis, in what was the last article that he ever penned, an article that went by the title, We Have No Right to Happiness. It's an article I would encourage that you read. We Have No Right to Happiness. Lewis tells the story of a neighbor in his own neighborhood who had decided to leave his wife for another woman and Lewis calls that man Mr. A and he says that Mr. A was leaving his wife Mrs. A for another woman Mrs. B who was herself leaving her husband Mr. B and Lewis writes in that article Mr. A had deserted Mrs. A and got his divorce in order to marry Mrs. B who had likewise got her divorce in order to marry Mr. A. And there was certainly no doubt that Mr. A and Mrs. B were very much in love with one another. If they continued to be in love, and if nothing went wrong with their health or their income, they might reasonably expect to be very happy. And then Lewis says, down toward the end of that essay, if we establish a right to happiness, sexual happiness, which supersedes all the ordinary rules of behavior. We do so not because of what our passion shows itself to be an experience, but because of what it professes to be while we're in the grip of it. He says, everyone except Mr. A and Mrs. B knows that Mr. A in a year or so may have the same reason for deserting his new wife as for deserting his old. He will feel again that all is at stake he will see himself again as the great lover, and his pity for himself will exclude all pity for this woman. Now, the point of Lewis's essay is that when men and women talk about their desire to be happy or to find sexual fulfillment or happiness, that is really an extremely selfish desire. It's actually not A selfless desire it's not what God intended in marriage and in the marital relationship it is actually incredibly self-fulfilling and self-pleasing and so that there is no sense in which anyone can reasonably say if they are doing this in the realm of a quest for sexual happiness that, that that is going to last now the reason I tell you that is because God takes sexual purity very seriously in fact when we look in scripture, there is almost no subject that gets more attention in the Bible than that of sexuality. I believe that is in part for many reasons. We're going to consider here in just a second this commandment, the rationale. What is the rationale for the second commandment? Why has God commanded us not to commit adultery? And as we consider the rationale for this commandment, we're going to go all the way back to the garden and we're going to understand that marriage was a creation ordinance, that one of the very first things that God does, the first thing he does for human society is he brings Adam, a wife who is comparable to him. Um, I love that old saying by Matthew Henry that that Eve was not uh, created from Adam's head to be over him or from his feet to be trampled on by him, but from his side to be nurtured and protected as a fitting helpmate to him. That's what God did at creation. He created male and female in his image, and then he brought them together in the bonds of sacred matrimony. And we know as scripture unfolds that the purpose for why God did that, the reason why God did that, was to show that there was something greater in human experience than even marriage, sexual intimacy, even the union between a man and a woman. And we learn in Ephesians chapter 5 where the Apostle Paul says that, that when a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two become one flesh, Paul says, this is a great mystery. I speak concerning Christ and the church. So from the very creation of the world, God instituted marriage, not just for the enjoyment and fellowship that it certainly provides, not just for the intimacy that is to be experienced in it, not just for the procreation and the reproduction that God wants that flows from it, but in a greater sense and in the highest sense, God instituted the creation ordinance of marriage to be a type and a picture of the union that believers have with Jesus Christ and so it should not come to us as any surprise that after Adam disobeys and he and all mankind in him fall and all of the corruption and perversion in the world uh, comes about because of his rebellion that the first place that that attacks is the marriage relationship remember it says that the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed before the fall But after the fall, they saw their nakedness and they tried to cover themselves. Now they understood that there was something perverted in their heart. One of the very first things we see affected by the fall is now what was once pure and holy has now been perverted by Adam's sin. And we all know this in our experience. Every man, woman, and child who has ever lived to some extent knows the perversion of the fall on our relationships in marriage, even if we don't know it personally, and there are those few people that have that gift of continence. I'll never understand that. Most of us, if you told us we had it, want to give that gift back. But but for those that have it, they even see the perversion in the relationships around them. You see it no sooner uh, that Adam and Eve begin to multiply that you see the descendants of Cain perverting what God had originally intended. You see polygamy very early on in human history. You see all the abuses that come. You see through the book of Genesis, all of the sexual perversion leading up to Sodom and Gomorrah. You see it throughout all of Israel's long, sad history. And you hear God bringing strong denunciations against it at every point. So much so, if I could point this out tonight that in Leviticus 20, verse 10, the Lord says through Moses, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Now that means we don't get to sit back and say, hey, death penalty for homosexuals, but not for us. So let's get that straight tonight. Heterosexual adultery is deserving of death. Homosexual practices are deserving of death. Sexual immorality is deserving of God's judgment in your heart and life, in my heart and life, and in the life of everyone in this world that has fallen in Adam. And here's the reason why. Because sexual intimacy in marriage, as I've already said, denoted something very close to fidelity to the Lord as our creator and redeemer. It's very interesting. When God um, likens himself in his relationship to Israel to anything, he likens himself to a husband, to the covenant people. He brings the covenant people, he says, into the wilderness. He woos them with his love. He brings them to himself to marry him. And Israel is constantly unfaithful in the marital relationship with Yahweh. And so Yahweh is constantly telling them, that they are spiritual adulterers and adulteresses. When Jesus comes and he is the bridegroom, he is the one who came to restore those relationships with the living God. Remember, he brings an accusation against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says, adulterers and adulteresses. He's not talking in the realm of their sexual practices. He's talking about the relationship with himself, with the living God. There is a whole book in the Old Testament Dedicated to that. It's the book of Hosea. And there in Hosea, remember, God tells the prophet to take a wife of harlotry. And, and as she keeps going after other men, God tells him, now go buy her back. Take her back. Something that no, no man would do on his own. She is prone to running after other lovers constantly. And the Lord says, this is what Israel is like. This is what my people are like. And yet, the Lord says, return to me. And I'll be a husband to you. No longer will you call me Baal, my master, but you will call me Baali, my husband. I will bind myself to them. And remember when Jesus comes, what is the chief title that he has given in the Gospels? That, that title at the very beginning when John the Baptist is introducing the Redeemer to the people, he, he says that he is merely the friend of the bridegroom, but, but that the bridegroom, Christ, has the bride. And it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus, the bridegroom, begins his ministry and his first miracle at a wedding to show that he is the heavenly bridegroom. And the Bible, just as it begins with a marriage, it ends with a marriage. The Bible begins with the wedding of Adam and Eve, and it closes with the wedding of the Lamb. And so there is this close relationship in Scripture between physical intimacy between a husband and a wife, And the intimacy and communion and fellowship between believers and the living God. Um, In the book of Revelation, there is a visual description of uh, believers following the lamb. And it says that they are virgins and that they follow the lamb wherever he goes. I don't think we're meant to, to read that as these are physical virgins. These are spiritual virgins. They are bound to Christ in spiritual fidelity. Everywhere in the Bible, marriage serves as an analogy, and either faithfulness or unfaithfulness serves as an analogy of the relationship between the covenant people and the living God. And that's why when we come to the seventh commandment, that's why this commandment is so very important. Um, Marriage is not a human contract that primitive people at some point decided would be a good idea. And it's interesting, even in our culture, where sexual immorality runs so rampant and where we are inundated day in and day out in every sphere by hearing and seeing sexual wickedness, that even in our culture, where men and women have cast off almost every semblance of morality in this realm, there is still and anger when a husband is unfaithful to his wife among pagans. There is still a recognition that something is not right, that if this person would do this to this individual, what more would that person do? If that person is so self-pleasing that they would take someone else to themselves, what other evils will they do? You know, we see this develop, don't we, so well in the life of David. Here's the man after God's own heart. Here's the sweet psalmist of Israel. Here is a man who never committed adultery like any other king in Israel. But when his heart was lifted up and when his men were at war and he should have been at war and David was on the balcony and he began to gaze on a woman that wasn't his wife and he began to continue to gaze on her And he took her to himself. You see the progression of evil that flows from that. If David would do that, what more would David do? David would murder one of his closest confidants in order to try to cover the thing that came to light when Bathsheba became pregnant with their child. Um, You see, this is this is not a small thing. Sexual sin is not a small thing. It's not a harmless thing. It's not a it's not an insignificant thing. Uh, In fact, very interesting, in the Bible, um, the Apostle Peter says that every other sin that a man or woman commits is outside of their body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against their own body. Um, Paul will talk about sexual sin warring against the soul. Um, You know it would do us a world of good to listen very carefully to all that the scriptures have to say about this commandment. Now, we've seen something of the rationale for this commandment. I want us to consider, secondly, uh, the requirement of this commandment. Now, there is both, as with all the commandments, a positive requirement and a Negative prohibition. Uh, we sometimes think about holiness in light of what we're not doing. As long as I don't look at pornography, as long as I don't flirt with a woman other than my wife, as long as I don't have sex outside of marriage, I'm, I'm doing okay. But actually, and, and the Westminster Confession of faith sets this out so helpfully. Listen to this. What are the duties required in the seventh commandment? The duties required in the seventh commandment are chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior. The preservation of it in ourselves and others. So that means that not only am I not to lust after a woman who's not my wife, I am actually to help her maintain purity in her own relationship With her husband or future husband you see it's not just about abstaining it's about positively promoting it's not just about not being unfaithful to our spouse it's about giving to our spouse what is due to he or she um you know it's very interesting the apostle paul will actually say at one point in in a striking way the woman's body is not her own, but is her husband's, and his body is not his own. I'm sorry, hon, but is her? <laughs> it belongs to her, his wife. That that there is a there is a duty of what we owe to one another in the confines of marriage. That that if a man just abstains from acting on sexual sin, but doesn't seek to lay down his life in sacrificial love and affection for her. He is not fulfilling the requirements of this commandment. Um, The Westminster Divines go on. They say that the commandment requires the preservation of it in ourselves and others. Watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses. Temperance, keeping of chaste company, modest in apparel, marriage by those who do not have the gift of continence, conjugal love and cohabitation, diligent labor in all our callings, shunning all occasions of uncleanness, and resisting temptations thereunto. Now that means that even in our speech, the apostles will say that we are to put away all coarse talking and foolish jesting. Any sexual jokes, the apostle says, are not even fitting for saints. Um, that in all that we do in the realm of our relationship to our spouse and to one another with regard to their relationship to their spouse or future spouse, we are to seek to self-sacrificially love, benefit, and build up others instead of taking to ourselves. Now, um, As I've noted, this is a very broad commandment. The Lord Jesus, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, correcting those misrepresentations of it by the Pharisees and Sadducees who wanted to just set up these externals and say, as long as I'm not doing A, B, or C externally, I haven't broken this commandment. Remember, the Lord uh, says, whoever looks at a woman or women at a man or man at a man or woman at a woman lustfully in their hearts has already committed adultery. So this commandment goes deep into the heart, not just in the external action. Um, The apostle speaks of false teachers having eyes full of adultery. That's, That's the language drawing off of that imagery, eyes full of adultery. So the commandment is spiritual in nature. It touches the heart. It requires the proactive guarding of our own minds, bodies, affections, words, and behaviors, and are promoting those things in others for their good. Now, what are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? Uh, Larger Catechism 139 says the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are... Adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, all unnatural lust, all uncleanness of imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt and filthy communications, listening unto, wanton looks, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, prohibiting of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, keeping of stews, that's houses of, prostitution, and resorting to them, entangling vows of single life, undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands than one at the same time, unjust divorce or desertion, and then a whole litany of other things. Now, that is very all-encompassing. And as I noted already, it would do us good to take an inventory check of our own hearts in these regards. Um, again, sexual immorality is not, it's not a harmless sin. In fact, the Proverbs have a lot to say about the effects of sexual immorality. In Proverbs 8, it says that the man that goes into the adulteress, that he is reduced to a crust of bread. I don't know about you, but I don't eat a lot of crust. (laughs) It's not worth a lot. It it steals the life of an individual. It takes away from an individual. It makes an individual useless. Her steps lead down to death. Um, You know, these things are very serious. And you know what? The church has got to start taking these things seriously. Not just looking on sexual sin out there. Because I see a whole lot of the church doing that. But on us looking at sexual immorality in here. It's real easy to look out. At all the promotion of wickedness out there. And say boo on them. But I've got all the world of corruption in this heart. And so do you. Listen to this. Edmund Clowney. Edmund Clowney says this. He says even a Christian. Who has lived a. Pure life in an external sense cannot stand before Christ's demands for purity. What husband has not looked on another woman and lusted? What wife has not thought, Why did God give me this husband? Would I not have been happier with another? What spouse, male or female, has not dreamed of using his or her body to impress or manipulate? What single, has not been tempted to idolize a longed-for marriage partner rather than trusting God for the sufficiency of his love. And if our fidelity in marriage and sexuality is weak, what hope do we have of standing pure in our fidelity to our Savior? We hear what he says, and we despair. Who is capable of such purity? Now, that's the right response. If we hear this and we say, I don't do those things, Then you are horribly deceived because your heart is a world of iniquity and my heart is a world of iniquity our hearts are a canyon of depravity by nature and at any moment like david if we let our guards down if we have wandering eyes wandering thoughts misplaced affections if we're not seeking to sacrifice and submit in love to our spouses or to wait on the Lord to give us the spouse that he's going to bring us, then we are just showing what is in the very depths of the darkness of our hearts. Just like with every other commandment, there should be no one that looks at this and says, I've never broken the seventh commandment. I'll tell you this evening, I was converted on October 11, 2001, uh, a month after 9-11, and I was living in sexual immorality and living in loads of darkness. And I was, uh, the Lord was beginning to work on me. And of all the Ten Commandments, it was the Seventh Commandment that just crashed down on my conscience. Adulterer, condemned, condemned, condemned. And you know what? It's good that it did that. It's good that it does that because it is meant to drive us into the arms of Christ. We never want to get to a place where we consider the Ten Commandments, the Seventh Commandment here in specific, and we say, hey, I'm good. If we ever get to that place, we are in a very dangerous place. And the more we recognize the propensity of our hearts, and you know where this really comes in? It struck me many years ago that God doesn't write all the things against sexual immorality to everybody outside the walls of the church. He writes them to the church. He writes them to Israel in the Old Covenant. You know, it's shocking that the covenant Lord has to tell the covenant people you can't sleep with an animal. He doesn't tell the pagan nations that. He tells Israel that because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew the depths of the depravity of their hearts. And so he addresses that to his people even before addressing that to the world. It's very important that we get that because for far too long, the church has really dropped the ball on this. You know, um, Francis Schaefer has a very interesting book. It's called The Great Evangelical Disaster. It was written in 1984 as the homosexual agenda was burgeoning in the United States and really gaining traction in the public sphere. And what Schaefer says in that book, he says the evangelical church lost the ability to take a strong stand against greater forms of perversion of the seventh commandment because the evangelical church has tolerated no-fault divorce, their children living out of wedlock with other individuals, and they haven't brought strong denunciations on those things, so when they speak against that, they've lost the right to speak on that. I think he's right. If we give up on these and say, these are lesser, they don't matter as much, and we attack those, we've lost The force of it. Uh, You know, an illustration that might be helpful, uh, whatever you think about Rudy Giuliani, when he was the mayor of New York, crime had been at its its height and murder rates were through the roof. And so Giuliani came in and he said, fine, we're going to deal with the murder rates in New York City by doing this. If you spit on the ground, we're going to give you a ticket. And they did that. And the murder rates plummeted because they dealt with what was lesser, they could deal more effectively with what was greater. Now, I think it would be very important for all of us to understand that if we are dealing very seriously with the depravity in our own hearts, with violations of this commandment in the many forms in which it comes in the church, we will have a much better vocal voice to those who sin in ways other than us in violations of these commandments. You know, the apostle sort of addresses this in 1 Corinthians 6, doesn't he? When when he says, um, do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he puts fornicators with homosexuals, with thieves, with extortioners. You see, it's not just one version of violations of this sin. It's all of it. Um, The more comprehensive... Our understanding of this commandment is, and the more serious attention we give to our own response to it and our own relationship to the Lord with regard to it, the more effective we'll be in calling others to the Savior who cleanses and heals and forgives. That's where I want to go thirdly. I want to talk about the remedy for our violations of this commandment. Uh, Phil Ryken says, so often when we break the seventh commandment, and let's just think about pornography because it's so ubiquitous. A young man looks at pornography, he's enslaved to pornography, he breaks the seventh commandment. Ryken says, we feel so guilty that it's all we can do to drag ourselves back to the cross. When what we ought to do instead is to run back to the cross and confess our sin. At the cross, we can find a sacrifice for our sin with cleansing for our guilt and the power to start living again for Christ. This is how the gospel now comes to bear. What do you do when you recognize that you violated the seventh commandment? You go back to the cross the same way you do in every sin that you commit. And you flee to Christ and you confess your sins and you cry out for deeper repentance. And then you take steps to guard and protect your heart against those sins. You take radical steps in your life to build high walls to protect you against them. Now listen, high walls will not change your heart. There are some, the whole fundamentalist movement is built on building high walls that God hasn't built and thinking that's going to make you holy. They don't, but they are helps in making us holy. Filters on the internet are a good and right thing that we should be using and protecting our children with. Those are good and right things. Um, One of my sons asked me the other day why he couldn't just download any app because his friends can. And I said, because mom and dad love you. And because there's a bunch of wickedness on the internet, a bunch with billions of sites, who knows how many, of wickedness, coming right into your, your phone and your internet, right before your eyes and right into your heart. And so we should build high walls. But high walls don't change our heart. Christ does. How does Christ help us with our violations of the seventh commandment and with keeping and obeying the seventh commandment? Well, Clowney again says this. I love this. He says, only Jesus was perfectly pure let's just settle that tonight. I know that you are not pure in heart, in the totality of who you are. And you know that I am not, because we are all fallen in Adam. We all have the same corrupt nature. And so it is right that we acknowledge only Jesus was truly pure. Only Christ never lusted one time after a woman that wasn't his wife. Only Christ never had evil desires and longings for someone else. Only Christ never sought to please himself like Mr. A out of a desire to be happy. We do it all the time in a thousand different ways. Only Jesus lived a sinless life with perfect, pure, holy motives, affections, desires, looks. So much so. That the sinless son of God could have prostitutes weeping at his feet, washing his feet with their hair, and not have one impure desire. Think about that. Only Jesus. In fact, in the very house where it happened, Simon the Pharisee judges him. If this man knew what kind of woman this was, probably because Simon had a filthy, lustful heart. And it wasn't so much about the woman's sin as what was in his heart. And he was projecting his sin on her. And he was projecting it on Jesus. But Jesus was perfectly sinless. Never a lustful glance. Never a misplaced affection. In fact, I'd go further and say that only Jesus has loved his spouse sinlessly. Because he loved the church all the way to the point of death. Laying down his life for us on the cross. Only Jesus perfectly sacrificed himself for his bride, and he did it when his bride wasn't lovely. He didn't have a beautiful bride. He didn't have a wife that every man would want. He took the worst. He took the, the, the off-scouring of all things, Paul says. That's what we are. We are the off-scouring, the scum of the earth. And he says, I am going to make her beautiful with my beauty. I am going to lay down my life for her. I am going to take her impurity. I am going to take her sexual immorality. I am going to take her uncleanness on myself. And I am going to wash it away in my blood. And then Jesus says, I am going to wash her with the water of my word. Listen to this. Clowney says this. He says, Jesus kept for us the seventh commandment against adultery. His holiness is the ground of our justification in this area of purity. When God ordered the children of Israel to make the tabernacle, he ordered a basin to be made to wash the hands and feet of the priest who would come into the tent of meeting. What's the point of that? The priests were unclean by nature. But, Clanny says, they were to be pure before entering God's presence. Of course, water can't purify from sin. It is Christ's holiness. That satisfies God's stringent demands for purity. Christ's holiness is the basin in which we wash in order to be pure in our thoughts and lives. This is why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11, when he says, don't be deceived, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators nor adulterers nor homosexuals nor thieves, and that whole catalog of depravity are not going to enter the kingdom, he says, but Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. What is the remedy to our violation of the sin? It's to go back to the cross for forgiveness. It's to go back to Christ for cleansing. Um, You know, it doesn't matter how many times You've gone back to the Lord. If you violated this commandment, if you've truly gone and truly repented and truly confessed your sins, you are clean in the blood of Jesus. You are washed. Your soul is washed. You don't have to live in the paralysis from the war that you've made against your own soul. Um, Now, it should lead us on to growth and grace. Right, We don't want to just say, well, that's great. We can just keep going on, just keep sinning. Because it is true, we do war against our souls when we commit any forms of this in thought, word, affection, desire, glances, or action. Um, and so we have to understand that Christ empowers us by his spirit to live in accord with his word. He not only washes us with the water of his word, he washes us by the power of himself, who is the living word. Think about that. He washes us with his own blood, and he enables us to grow. And here's how it works. The more I am drawn to Christ, the more I'll want to love my spouse in a way that I owe her that love. The more I am focusing on Christ, the more I'm going to want those that are not my spouse to be drawn close to Christ and not away from their husband and to me. The more I am tempted to sexual immorality, the more I need to see the loveliness and beauty of Jesus. I wanna leave you with this tonight. There's this magnificent picture. We all know uh, Proverbs chapter uh, seven and eight, no doubt, about the adulterous woman. And I think that's a personification of evil. I don't think it's just about a physical adulterous woman. I think the writer's talking about evil under that analogy. And remember, it says that um, she entices the young man to come into her house, and she says, I've I've covered my bed with Egyptian tapestry and with myrrh and aloes, and and she's perfumed everything. You know that language there in Proverbs chapter 7 and 8. And it's the picture of being lured in and drawn into that form of evil and all all sin but that in particular and and then there's this magnificent contrast and it's written by david's son who arguably also wrote that proverb and it's psalm 45 and in psalm 45 we read about the king and and this is a picture of christ we're told in hebrews one that this is christ he's the king he's mighty he's Got his sword girded on his side, and the queen is being brought to him. His bride is being brought to him. And and it says that all his garments are scented in myrrh and aloes and cassia. It's almost the exact same language of what the adulterous woman has perfumed her bed with. And I think we are meant to get from that, that Christ in the gospel is always saying, let me allure you to myself. Let me draw you with something better. Let me draw you away from other enticements, and let me entice you with a greater enticement. That's really the answer to what Lewis is proposing, isn't it? Um, Mr. A is never going to find true happiness because Mr. A is only trying to please himself. But if Mr. A knew that there was a source of satisfaction in a savior and he was drawn to him, he would be faithful to Mrs. A. He would flee from Mrs. B. He would promote the marriage of Mrs. B with her husband. And he would live in fidelity in his marriage because he is finding satisfaction in the savior. And let me say this tonight because there's so much more we could say. But at the end of the day, none of us will ever find true satisfaction in another human being. You will never truly find satisfaction in your spouse, no matter how much we love our spouse. And we want to have the utmost love for our spouse. And children, no matter how much you think that getting married one day is going to satisfy you, I'm here to tell you it will not. My wife will tell you that. But what does satisfy us is the Lord Jesus, and he makes our marriages deeper wells of joy and delight as we make our way as co-heirs together through this world. And we seek to remain as faithful as the Lord will make us in that marriage until we die. And this was God's purpose in marriage, isn't it? Jesus said, what God has joined together Let no man put asunder. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this evening what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we know that these are cutting truths because we know the depths of the depravity of our heart. And yet we thank you and praise you, our God, that you are a God who has created marriage. We thank you that you have given those of us who are married here tonight, the spouses that you have given us, And yet, our God, we are grieved over the ways that we have not kept this commandment, the ways that our hearts and our eyes and our affections have wandered for the times that we have allowed the influences of the world to work on us from without. We do pray that you would forgive us and have mercy on us. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would wash us and cleanse us, that as you did forgive David and cleanse him when he confessed his sins and repented of them we pray that you would give us clean hands and pure hearts we pray our god that we would know more of the purity and the beauty and the glory of jesus we pray that you would draw us lord jesus with cords of love that you would make us to find satisfaction in you so that we might live lives that are pleasing to you in this regard and so our god would you hear us would you help us would you protect us would you restore us And would you guard us, Lord, and make us a people who are longing for pure and clean and right hearts, minds, and spirits and bodies. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.